Hey, welcome to Night School, Monday Night School, and this episode is going to be mostly focused on cultural commentary. I understand that's a thread that runs throughout this Night School show, but uh, you know, this episode I think is going to be focused on cultural commentary specifically. You know, I often point out, as many other people do, the idea of horseshoe theory, which is that the political extremes are actually much closer mirrors of each other. They're much similar to each other on the left and right extremes than they are similar to the middle. The idea is that the two extremes of the horseshoe are almost touching. And even though they seem further apart than anything else on the horseshoe, in terms of just pure space, they're very close together. I'm sure somebody could rip that apart, but there is a lot of truth to it as well. I'm sure it's not 100% true. But there are, there's a reason why that idea is attractive and why it makes sense. And usually when horseshoe theory comes up, it's in reference to right now, the political extremes right now. And we can see that in certain ways. We can see where you know, the, the left is obsessed with the idea of climate apocalypse, the idea that we will be judged for our sins and we will be judged in the form of ecological horror, floods, fires, disease, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then we see where, you know, the fundamentalist right, the fundamentalist evangelical right, what do they believe in? Some sort of rapture, some sort of day of reckoning, God's judgment, creating floods, fires, you know, pandemics, you know, we, we see similar ideas just in that alone. And it's easy to see these things in the right now, which I think is how horseshoe theory is often framed. The, these things are close together right now. But I want to get away from that. I just had to point that out real quick. Uh, I want to get away from that, though, and talk more about the way things shift over time. The way that certain ideas go from one end of the political spectrum to the other. And I don't know how much of that shift is gradual or how much of it's some sort of, if there's some sudden impetus for it, but it fascinates me. And I don't hear it talked about that much. I hear horseshoe theory mentioned all the time. I hear this idea that these two political extremes mirror each other a lot, but I don't often hear about the way that they sort of, they dance, the way they sort of exchange values. And I know that, that I've pointed this out in bits and pieces, but I want to address it more head on in this episode. And one interesting thing is Russia. One common element of the in the US, you know, if you look at US history for the last 120 years, 100 years, maybe give or take. Uh, let's go back to the communist revolution. If you want to look at, you know, the US's relationship to Russia since the communist revolution, it's perpetually negative, and it doesn't seem to matter what political system is in place in Russia. I mean, a lot of this might come from them being a superpower. When another country is a superpower, it's going to result in some sort of opposition to them within a country, within a rival superpower like the U.S. But you can see where you know the U.S. spent decades where conservatives were utterly terrified of Russia. Everything was centered around Russia spreading communism using underhanded, nefarious means, spies, espionage. 
And they used that against American leftists, where American leftists, some of whom were socialists and, and communists, but those people were treated as if they were agents of Russia colluding with Russia and their uh, whatever their plot was to spread communism and spread their Russian empire around the around the globe. And it, to the point where it was hysterical, the American conservatives were hysterical about Russia. And then the Soviet Union falls apart. And I this episode's not going to be talking about politics the whole time. I'm just building up with this. But the Soviet Union falls apart. You know, Russia goes through this uh, awkward tweener stage. And then they become a superpower again. But they're no longer communist. They're no longer the Soviet Union. They're inst- I'm not sure what they are. I'm not sure how you would describe Russia. Maybe like an oligarchy, that word that everybody throws around. I'm not sure exactly how you'd describe it. But they're politically very aggressive. And now the left is utterly terrified of them and hysterical about everything they do. And the left is accusing all kinds of people. They're accusing robots of being Russian agents. And they're, they've been accusing conservatives now for the last number of years of colluding with the Russians. So what's the constant? The constant is that at least half of America at any given time, going back to the communist revolution, is hysterical and utterly terrified of Russia. And Russia using underhanded as well as overt means to influence our country. So that much is a constant, regardless of where that falls on the political spectrum. You can pretty much set your watch to the fact that Americans are going to be terrified of Russia at any given time. But it's interesting how that has switched places where, you know, it used to be the right that was opposed to Russian influence and saw Russians in their own hall closet at night. You know, they saw Russians under the bed. And then now it's the left who sees Russians everywhere and has and comes up with their own conspiracy theories about Russians hacking elections and Russian Facebook accounts turning the tide. Uh, Hillary didn't win because of Russian Facebook accounts, which is just so absurd. It's like, oh, yeah, the election is, is such a it was <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to comment on it. Um, but, you know, you can see where that comes in. And then in that in the case of Russia, we can see where it kind of you know, switch sides, like the hysteria about Russia switch sides, because they're no longer a communist Soviet country. And communism and socialism lends itself to leftism. So we can kind of understand why that switched. That makes sense. It makes some level of sense why the left used to be maybe more sympathetic to Soviet Russia, and why now they're not. And it makes sense why conservatives used to be terrified of Soviet Russia, and now they're not. We can see that there was a a political system in place that contributed to that relationship to American politics, to global politics for that matter. But it's not always that cut and dry. And what I wanted to get into here, the pure cultural commentary of this, is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, is how diet and health has sort of switched seats politically. Because when I came of age, and just to explain what that means to me, not to go too far here, but uh, 
too far off base here, but you know, coming of age to me just means when I started being aware of larger social, cultural, political issues, external issues, beyond just the sorts of things a kid cares about. Like, it's not that I was ignorant of everything as a little kid, but it's like I was much more, my entire world was my toys, my interests, my family, my friends, school. I wasn't necessarily thinking about the bigger picture of what it means to be a human in society and what it even means to be a human and all this other stuff. And so to me, coming of age basically just means, you know, going through puberty on a biological level, but also becoming aware of some of the larger forces at work, not necessarily limited to politics, but including politics for sure. Uh, But when I came of age, let's say it was around probably the late 90s, early 2000s is when I really came of age. And at that time, everybody associated being fat and unhealthy with redneck Republicans. It was a punchline. They shop at Walmart and they eat fast food and they're going to die of heart disease. You'd even see people who are, while he's a liberal, you know, I, I feel like he's always been a little more independent, but you'd see Bill Maher make comments like that. You know, well, they, they just get all their food at Walmart. You know, you'd see that kind of, that's totally one of his jokes. <laughs> but that sort of narrative, it was this elitist sort of narrative where it's like, look at these poor people who shop at the place where they can afford food and all the food they can afford happens to be like breaded chicken tenders and you know garbage and they they buy fast food because that's what's cheap and convenient and look at how stupid and fat they are all those stupid and fat redneck republicans that was you know that might sound like i'm exaggerating but that was a real strong narrative from the left when i was growing up and i should know because i was surrounded by it and i bought into it i said stuff like that as a teenager And I was fat too. All I ate was chicken tenders and pizza all day. But I still had this kind of, I kind of tried to hold my head up high. And I kind of thought, oh yeah, those, those redneck Republicans who don't know what's best for them, those Bush supporters, just getting fat with their, you know, and you, you would hear it a lot from otherwise balanced people who fell on the left end of the spectrum. There was this kind of high and mighty, like, they don't know what a proper diet is. They eat garbage and they're really fat. And that's what, that's the stereotypical American. Like when people used to say, oh, the stereotypical American is fat and has heart, heart problems and diabetes. They weren't talking about leftists. They were talking about middle America. And usually it was coupled with a reference to the South or the Midwest, and, and in turn, it was politicized as they are going to vote Republican because they're stupid, too, because they're fat and they're stupid. If you think that I'm exaggerating, I'm not. This is really the kind of stuff that went on in leftist circles and even publicly, even, you know, in books and TV. You know, you had these people like the John Stewart sort of, you know, mentality and, you know, all the stuff that came out of that, this you know, all the stuff that came out of that, the whole, basically that spawned an entire form of humor for a while. And it's basically become the standard, a really, you know, a pitiable version of that is kind of the standard humor among my generation, at least on the left. It's like some really, 
You take something that's not even funny to me to begin with, and you just let it trickle down, and that becomes like how people talk at parties. Um, uh, but the idea was just that, oh, you know, f- being fat is a more of a, a dumb, redneck, Republican, Southern, Walmart thing. And the stereotype for decades, going back to the 1960s with the hippies and, and all that, was that, oh, people on the left tend to eat organic food, they eat more vegetables, they eat less red meat, they tend to be more active, they go hiking, they spend a lot more time outdoors, they bike. So those were sort of what the stereotypes were, is that the left tends to be thinner and healthier and more active with a much better and more organic diet. Whereas the right, at least the masses, maybe not the elites on the right, but the idea was that the the unwashed masses on the right, you know, shop at Walmart where they buy like a 10-pound bag of chicken tenders and they, you know, don't move. They're going to have to go around the grocery store in one of those ride-on carts. They don't walk. They don't, they don't exercise. They just sit around watching TV. They watch sports and pro wrestling. You know, there was this idea that, that that's what people were like. And people were like, the future is going to be that. And then over time, things shifted. This is what's really interesting. And this is what I'm, I'm trying to kind of pinpoint is the when did it become when did being fat and lazy become more of a leftist thing? And it's not that it fat and lazy people are now exclusive to the left. But when did that become this source of pride? When did there become this platform based around that? And of course, this is the buzzwords are body shaming, fat shaming. You know, when did that shift? I mean, I think it was gradual. I don't remember an exact moment. But it's interesting to look at simply because it used to be so different. The left used to relentlessly mock rednecks who generally have conservative values and they would be the ones getting mocked for being fat and and the stereotype of course as i'm just reiterating myself but the stereotype was that people on the left ate more vegetables healthier food and were more active and they were proud of that and then it shifted and of course there are still people who that absolutely describes them on the left but when did this narrative pick up steam. And as someone who pays attention to these things, you know, I I could see it building, but I don't think I saw it going this far. I I don't think I saw it to where the left is actively promoting that you should be fat and saying being fat is healthy and you should practice self-care by eating ice cream and chicken wings and whatever else you want to eat and pizza. And you can see where pizza has even become a symbol of the left. And this isn't new. I, I don't hear people talk about it. But slices of pizza, like like an ex-girlfriend of mine had a friend who made like pizza stickers and they would put them on everything. And part of it's just fun. Like I'm not trying to read some nefarious intent. You know, I'm not trying to like come up with some conspiracy about like pizza here. Uh, but although people have, I don't think it's a coincidence that Pizzagate is a thing and all that. But they reached a point where suddenly, like, the left started to, like, be really into pizza. I'm going to wear a shirt with a piece of pizza on it. Like, the pizza stickers I just mentioned. And you know, I, got, I got no, I have no problem with this. Like, I have no problem with people putting 
pizza on their bodies, but it became almost this joke too. It became this kind of, but it kind of goes hand in hand with what I'm talking about. This idea of like, eat what you want, blow up as big as you want and celebrate it. And if anybody calls you out on it, you know, they're the worst criminal in the world. If anybody makes you feel remotely bad about being unhealthy, even though the left did that to the right, even though the left did that to the the poor right, to the struggling working class southern Midwest right, even though the left did that to the right for years, it's now become this unpardonable sin for anybody to do that at all. Since, the, since it's become this sort of leftist platform to celebrate being fat and to eat whatever you want and all of this. And I'm not even coming from a place of telling people what to do. I don't believe in telling people what to do with their bodies. You know, I'm, this is an observable phenomenon that I've witnessed. And do I have attitudes and opinions about health and fitness? As far as I'm concerned, yes. And I'm not going to be told, you know, you, you know, I, I stand by what I've experienced as someone who grew up fat. I stand by what I've experienced as someone who's devoted my life to fitness and a healthy diet. You know, I'll stand by my experience with that. And uh, nobody can try to convince me otherwise just because there's this new political narrative. But that said, I don't believe in telling anybody else what to do. I don't necessarily like the, again, hysteria that has come out of all this. But what's interesting about this is that I knew a lot of people on the left, and they and many of them, the people who were devoted to liberalism in the left, tended to be a lot healthier, and they tended to hold their heads up high about it. You know, I think about my sister and like some of her boyfriends she had and stuff, and they were, you know, I would call them hippies. I don't know that she would call herself a hippie, but I think they were hippies, and they were, you know, they did not like the way I ate. They weren't judgmental about it, but they weren't going to eat the way I ate. And they were very conscious of what they ate, and they were very active, and they were healthy. And I knew a lot of people like that through her. I knew a lot of people involved in uh, you know, environmental education. I knew a lot of hippies. I knew a lot of leftists. But I also was fortunate in that I knew rednecks. I grew up knowing, being very close to some rednecks who... If you're new to this show or you haven't been paying enough attention, I consider rednecks the true pagans. This is what they are. If you've spent time with real rednecks, and I had the pleasure of spending some of the formative years of my life with a family of just unapologetic, true blue redneck pagans, and I learned a lot from them. But what was interesting is all the women in that family, like all the adult women, and, and with that family too, I spent a lot of time with them. And it was one of those things where you you know their aunts, you know their cousins, there's people coming and going from that house, the door is open, you end up meeting like random friends, you end up meeting a lot of people. And a lot of the adult women in that family were significantly overweight. And they were completely unapologetic about it. They would wear like spandex pants and, uh, you know, like a Tweety Bird sweater, a Tweety Bird sweatshirt. And they didn't care at all. And they were all like that. Like I knew these, like, there were sisters, uh, you know, like I said, like ran, just you, there was, there were ran, always random people there. And I don't even know if they were related, if through marriage, I don't, I don't know what the connection was, but it was like a revolving door of people. And that's 
because they are pagans and it was just like every day was a celebration and they did what they wanted. They ate what they wanted and they drank what they wanted and they also lived off the earth. They hunted, you know, it's like what I say about pagans using every tool available. You know, they weren't technological people. They didn't use computers, but they worked on cars. They rode motorcycles. They used guns. They hunted. They did bow hunting I'm sure they use their phones a lot now, now that it's normal. But they just kind of used things, and they didn't give it a second thought. They just did what was natural to them, and that's why I consider them pagans. They swore around their kids. You know, it was unfiltered. They believed, They absolutely believed in free speech. They said whatever they wanted in front of whoever they wanted. And that kind of gets to my point, where these women were very overweight, but they were just, it didn't bother them at all. They were not self-conscious. They wore what they wanted. And they kind of had this attitude of, uh, they even like practically said things like this. It's like, I'm big and I'm loud. And if you have a problem with it, you can get this. And they give you the middle finger, which is a, a version of that, um, what I talked about in a recent episode, like the preloaded confrontational platitudes, the idea of like, I went to the school of hard knocks. And if you mess with my family, you're going to get a fist to your face. You know, all these sort of preloaded confrontational platitudes are very popular with redneck pagans. Those people are, are, you know, they practically created the genre, the category of communication that a weird nerd like me calls preloaded confrontational platitudes. I'm fat and I'm loud, and if you don't like it, you can kiss my ass. You know, these women communicated that all the time. And if you called them fat or loud, they wouldn't give a shit. They'd laugh. They might be like, give you the finger. If they don't like you, maybe they'd get in your face. And you know what? They were confident about it. Maybe they felt like shit because of their diet and, and everything. I don't know. But they carried it with confidence. And it's interesting to have experienced that. The fact that they were basically, you couldn't fat shame them because they didn't care. And they're more confident than you are even. So it's like you couldn't even fat shame them if you wanted because they're just going to come back at you even more severely and move on. Like, like if, if you called a woman like that fat, she's going to be like, yeah, well, fuck you. I'm big and I'm loud and I do what I want. She's going to just like, and she's going to move on from that a second later. Like she's not going to, there's no resentment that's going to fester. Like, and, and they could joke around with each other very severely. And yeah, I'm using one family as an example, but I've seen this with a number of people. Through those people, I got to know this, this whole group. And I've known other people like that as well. I wouldn't say that like my entire life has just been like nonstop exposure to rednecks. My life has been nonstop exposure to all kinds of rednecks. No, but I, I've certainly gotten a, a taste for it, an experience with it. And, but that's what gets me too, is it wasn't like, I don't, and it's not like I remember, and, and like nobody even like called them fat even. Nobody even had to. It was just kind of built into the situation that they were fine with who they were and nothing you could do could insult them because they can insult you back and they're going to move on. They're not going to sit there ruminating on it the rest of the night. And if they don't like you, they don't like you. But they're going to be rough around the edges if they do like you. And you can be that way with them. It's just like, you know, it's just one of those things where uh, it was fascinating to see that. And that's what's missing from this whole leftist fat shaming thing, where it's like instead of 
while, while the attitude gets communicated of like, I'm fat and there's nothing you can do about it. The reality is that person's ego is just shattered if they're, if they're even described accurately. Because that's what I hated as, as a former fat person, as someone who's still probably mentally fat. Therefore, I feel like I can talk about this. If someone listens to this show and is like, oh, yeah, this guy who's in shape just talks about fat people. You know, I, I never stopped being mentally fat. You know, I, I was born, you know, <laughs> not born this way, but I, I was, uh, I carry a little bit of that with me and I don't, not in the form of insecurity, but just in the form of like, I understand it. I'll never not understand it. Uh, but with being fat, you know, the thing that it sucked about it is when someone even accurately describes you, it's an insult. Like you think about so many insults in life and they're based on somebody exaggerating or inventing some pejorative intended, you know, they, they build a spear to hurl at you. And in many cases, you can, go, you can be like, that spear doesn't even exist. You know, like that spear that you created to hurl at me, it's not going to pierce me because it, you just made it up and it doesn't actually apply to me. But the, the thing that sucks about being fat is just that to even be accurately described is an insult. Therefore, you should just learn to deal with it. If, if an accurate description of your physicality is an insult, you have no choice but to either like change or learn to deal with it. And those women, those redneck women that I knew, and just so you know, they called themselves rednecks. They were self-described rednecks, and they didn't say it ironically. They just knew, they were self-aware to know that that's what they were. And, uh, you know, again, though, it's, it's kind of like getting called fat or, or, you know, just this sort of like, I'm fat and I'm loud. What are you going to do about it? It's like, I'm a redneck. What are you going to do about it? They kind of carried that attitude about everything. Were they, I mean, am I saying they were Zen masters? No, not at all. They had problems. They would get in fights. They would get in, I saw a lot of stuff that was, that made me cringe. But, you know, there was two sides of the coin, which like, while there was a lot of stuff that made me cringe, not a lot seemed to make them cringe. And, uh, you know, it, it was just like, like I said, it was just their attitude was like, kiss my fat ass. <laughs> and uh they meant it they they didn't care uh they had husbands you know they weren't looking for they weren't looking for anything they weren't getting they had kids they were participating in the the full process the full cycle of life so i think that may may have added to it whereas now it's like you have this phenomenon of like single women who are on these platforms about like, we need to stop fat shaming and body shaming, and we need to promote self care, which means putting uh, chicken tenders on your pizza and dipping it in ice cream in the bathtub, you know, uh, with aromatic candles all around. Um, and those people are extremely sensitive, like no matter how much they try to promote that way of thinking, they're extremely sensitive about it. And even when they try to kind of like have this chip on their shoulder, it comes across as like a pale imitation of these redneck women I know. And and those women somehow, you know, maybe I'm reading more into this than I need to. Maybe I'm like fantasizing. <laughs> but like the redneck women that I grew up knowing, they also like nobody conditioned them to feel that way. 
They just all kind of carried that with them. Maybe there was one of them that was self-conscious. I don't know. You know, but they, I got to know this family and their friends and all these people. I went to countless parties. I spent years with these people. I was in and out of their house all the time. I went on trips with them. I went on adventures. I knew them as well as you can really know another family during that period of my life. And uh, I, I don't know. I feel like my description of them is accurate. And I wouldn't want them to hear this. They might take it the wrong way, except they might not. They'd probably just be like, I don't understand like why you're using all these words to describe <laughs> describe something that's so simple to us. But nobody conditioned them. Nobody like sat them down and was like, listen, don't let anybody ever fat shame you. You can wear your spandex pants and Tweety Bird sweatshirt. And they did. She did. The mom of this family would wear a Tweety Bird sweatshirt. All that stuff is real. But it's just interesting that then, like, now that that has become... And these people weren't liberals, you know, I'll tell you that. Um, But now that it's become this liberal or leftist platform, it's so sensitive. And if you did call somebody... if a a It doesn't make make a difference if it's a man or a woman, but it tends to be women who, who are more focused on this, which is unfortunate. You know, it's unfortunate um, that it's such a preoccupation, but it's like the people who do try to communicate that attitude on the left of like, I'm fat and you can kiss my ass. The reality is, is, is if somebody even accurately describes their body, they're going to ruminate about that for weeks. They're going to post about it online. They're going to pity themselves. And I guess... I wish that they had the same. It's not that I'm telling them lose weight. I'm not an asshole saying like lose the weight. Be whoever you want to be. I truly believe that. No matter what I'm saying here, be who you want to be and do what you want to do within reason. But I wish that they could gain that same confidence that these redneck women had. But it's interesting that that's sort of flip-flopped. And now there's a, a much stronger current of health and diet on the right. And I mean, I don't know about, you know, poor Southerners. I don't know about the working class in other parts of the country. I mean, I'm sure people are still shopping at Walmart. I'm sure there's still an obesity epidemic all over the country, especially with working class, you know, redneck white people. I'm sure that's still going strong. But there has been sort of a a current of health and fitness and I don't, it, there, there's been an interesting current on the right, though, that kind of is more like the, the diet and philosophy of the left of many years ago, which is interesting, too. And this is what I mean about values shifting and things flip-flopping. And it's interesting to me, too, though, how, like, how politicized a lot of this stuff is and always was. Because, like, talking about you know, rednecks being heavier and and the left kind of like snidely remarking about, oh yeah, these people with their uh, two liter bottles of Coca-Cola and their double Big Macs voting for George W. Bush, getting their heart disease. You know, that was this line of thought. And around that time too, you started to see these centralized humiliation portals show up on the internet. And just to be totally clear, the internet has always been a humiliation portal. Like there have always been humiliating pictures of people spread publicly on the internet. But I think when it started to become centralized is when you started to see there was a website 
I think around the mid 2000s called People of Walmart. And it's exactly what I'm talking about here. It was humiliating photos of people shopping at Walmart. And while some of them were people like, yeah, there's a guy in a, you know, a leopard print thong over zebra tights walking around Walmart shopping and he's 80 years old with a ponytail. Like that's obviously a freak. Like that guy's obviously doing something freaky, even kinky, kinky. Uh, you know, obviously that's an, that's something else, but that site, people at Walmart, it was also, you know, a way to humiliate the mentally ill and obese and poor. And trust me, that website was popular with leftists. It was probably created by leftists. And I knew it was becoming a centralized thing, not just because a website existed like that, because there were other websites before that. There was like mullets galore, mullet junkie, although that was hyper specific to mullets, the hair, the haircut. Everybody knows what that is now. Um, and I'm on there, not me personally, like not my picture. But if you go to mulletjunkie.com, and that's junkie with a Y, mulletjunkie.com and you go to the mullets across america and then the washington state page you'll find photos i took 21 years ago and they were uploaded to that i sent them to the owner of that website 21 years ago and you know my friends and i we were like 13 14 year old boys with our first digital camera and we had uh, what they call cojones because we would go up to these scary men and say can we take your photo and at that point you know not to be like Oh, we knew about it before everybody else. Because obviously we we heard it from somebody else. There were already people taking mullet photos and mullet videos and that kind of things. But in general, it wasn't a well-known thing that, you know, people knew what a mullet was, but it's not like they knew that it had a name. They didn't know that there were people out hunting it. Like we would go to festivals, we would go to different places and we would try to find them. And it was a lot of fun. And while sometimes we would be jerks who took photos of people without their permission, we would go up to people. But what I'll say, you know, even though I'll fully admit we were on the mullet trend, I will fully admit that my friends and I were following the mullet trend, made famous in like skateboarding movies and things like that. We would take pictures of a lot of other people too. Like anybody who we thought was suitably weird We would either go up to them or find a sneaky way to take a photo of them. And it wasn't so much humiliation. I mean, I think of it more as art. That's my justification for everything. What we were doing was art. Because it's not like we chose people who were mentally or physically impaired. We had, for whatever reason, specific people stood out to us. And yeah, it, didn't, it wasn't limited to guys with mullets, although we did do that. But go to mulletjunkie.com, mullets across America section, Washington State, and you will see photos I took. And the one that I'm especially proud of, I think there's three photos on there. There's the guy that we talked to and showed him video footage on my friend's, my friend Nick, there's a photo of my friend Nick wearing a skateboarding shirt, uh, the same Nick that I always talk about on here. And uh, he's showing this guy Troy photos and Troy was a really nice guy but he was in Oakley's with a spiky mullet really long you know really nice guy and we told him all about it he probably got it cut a short time later maybe not but the one that I'm really proud of is there's a guy sitting on a boat he's got a tattoo gray hair kind of thinning hair with a mullet and sunglasses and a mustache and he was a scary guy he was sitting there drinking beer on a boat and we went up to him and I said can I take your picture and he said yeah 
we went back there a couple of weeks later. I think it was during the summer, so it was nice weather. And he was sitting there again on the same boat, docked. You know, I mean, it was it was like tied to the dock, so they're not out on the they're not out boating. They're just hanging out at the dock on on their boat. And this t- the second time we saw him, we had a video camera, and so I don't have the footage, but he was wearing just these like really short swimming trunks, shirtless. And you can see if you go to this website, you'll see the other photo of him that I did take where he's in like a shirt with this, like a button up, like black denim shirt with the sleeves cut off. He's a bad dude and you know it. And we knew it then. But then when we saw him two weeks later, we asked him, we were like, hey, we talked to you a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, yeah. And we're like, what have you been up to? And he goes, drinking, fighting. And we were like, cool. And we left him alone after that. But, you know, it took balls, honestly. I'll give our I'll give our young selves credit. We weren't the toughest kids in the world. We were from the suburbs. But we went up to these scary dudes sometimes and we're just like, can we take your photo? People in New York is a psyop or was a psyop. I don't think it's still, I think that operation ceased. But that people in New York, like, here's a picture of... Uh, a dude in Central Park and his grandparents came over from Russia and worked uh, sweeping up the floor of a bakery and they, his parents met, blah, blah, you know, this like people of New York psyop, you know, we predate that. We were going up to scary guys, taking their photos with their permission and without their permission. But anyway, so, I mean, I participated in the hum- humiliation, <laughs> humiliation ritual. I participated in it too, except in a lot of cases, like, I, like I, I guess my whole point is that we had the balls sometimes, sometimes to ask these guys for their photos. Uh, but these, so the internet though has always been a humiliation portal. Like you even remember, like a lot of it was on forums, I think, and stuff like that. Cause there are some pictures that became like, kind of like canonical internet photos where it would be like a fat guy with long hair, bald on top sitting in his computer room, surrounded by empty two-liter bottles, building a computer, you know, wearing tidy-whitey, dirty tidy-whities. You know, there'd be pictures like that, which, like, that must be a self-humiliation thing because that guy had to have taken that photo himself and distributed it somehow. But did that guy intend for it to be a permanent part of the Internet that people post over and over again? Probably not, unless it was, like, a a very deep form of self-humiliation. But very early on, too, there would be candid photos of embarrassing people, and they would make their rounds on message boards. They would make their rounds. There'd be random sites, like the mullet sites, which is how I got on that tangent. But there reached a point where I suddenly realized that it had become centralized. And, you know, I think a girl showed me people of Walmart. I'm pretty sure a hot girl, a pretty girl, showed me people of Walmart. And you know when a pretty girl is showing you something like that, that it's become centralized. Now, maybe I'm off base. Maybe I'm off base. But I feel like when a pretty girl shows you something, there's a strong chance that it is either becoming centralized or has already become centralized. Maybe that's just my take. Maybe that's a controversial take. I don't know. But that's just how I feel. I just feel that when a pretty girl shows you a website like people of Walmart, I think it's a pretty good sign that the humiliation portal has been centralized. And people of Walmart was designed to humiliate people. And it was designed to humiliate people who were probably redneck Republicans. And while that wasn't explicitly stated, 
that was just in the air. That was the zeitgeist of the era. Bush was in power. The evangelical right was in power. And I think that it was almost a way, it was kind of a, a way to attack the lowest common denominator of that side. The people who were seen as too dumb to act in their own self-interest and all they can do is just uh, spend their their limited money at Walmart and get fat and die. You know, that was kind of the, the if you don't, if you weren't of age then, like if people are under the age of 30, I don't know if they really uh, know about this. And if you weren't in a leftist stronghold like the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast, maybe you didn't experience it either. Although it was on TV. I mean, The Daily Show, all of these things. I mean, I think it was national in scope. Um, but uh, I happened to come of age while this was going on, and I bought into it too. You know, I, I admit when I was in you know junior high and high school, I bought into this way of thinking too. I was like, yeah, look at these people. Meanwhile, I'm... I have the same diet and physique they do, but still that shows, that tells you everything. The fact that I had the same diet and physique that these people I was making fun of had, that tells you everything because that shows you that it is some amount of political elitism. That tells you that it's more than just the physicality of it. That tells you that a large part of it is political. And yeah, people of Walmart, I think, was a centralization. And you saw a lot of this anti-Walmart sentiment from the left. You'd see stickers. Like there was a sticker that people used to have on the back of their cars. Maybe you still see it sometimes. It said, Walmart sucks. I'm not even kidding. All it said is Walmart sucks. And you know what? That actually was a seed that was planted for me. Because like my family didn't grow up going to Walmart. We were more of a, we were a Fred Meyer family. But I remember never completely buying into the anti-Walmart thing. I think that that was actually a little seed that was planted for me. Because I remember giving some pushback about Walmart because I realized early on, like, you're making fun of poor people for shopping at the only place that is affordable to them. And then you have the inverse of that now. Since I'm talking about, like, value shifting and stuff, like, the idea used to be that, like, oh... People on the left go and they buy their expensive organic food at these boutique health food stores, at these co-ops. But at least where I live, the popular place to shop, and it's almost a status, sim- status symbol, is grocery outlet. Like, I think about a girlfriend I had who was on the far left and all of her friends were extremely radical left. And they would just like kind of brag about shopping at Grocery Outlet, which if you're not familiar, it's extremely cheap food. It's an outlet store for groceries and you get stuff that's like about to expire. It's fun. I mean, I shop there. I mean, it's what I can afford. You know, I shop there myself and I enjoy shopping there because you never know what you're going to get. While there's some level of consistency, you'll go there and they'll have like a protein bar that's normally really expensive and you can buy a ton of it for cheap. And and then it's gone the next week and it never comes back. You know, it's sort of fun. I like that you can go to a store and not know entirely what to expect. Because when you go to like Safeway or a big chain grocery store, you know exactly what's going to be there. Unless some product gets discontinued permanently for some reason, chances are you know what's going to be at that store. So I like grocery outlet that you can go there and it's kind of like hunting. Like you don't know what you're going to get that day. 
You know that there are going to be certain things, certain foundational things, but you might not know what brand you're going to get. And yeah, you know, it's tough times. I have to go there. I have to shop at Grocery Outlet and I enjoy going there. But there, it's become this status symbol. And like I was talking to Miles about it because it goes back some years too because he was talking about this neighbor he had who was this uh, just uh, out of control girl who uh, just every stereotype you could possibly come up with about a far-left musician, she was that. From, like, identity politics to, like, the music she made to her personality. Like, one time she... We were out of weed, and she came over and got us stoned, which is really nice, but she, like, freaked out on us for no reason. There was 100%. Like, I'll admit, like, some people have freaked out on me in my life, and there might have been a reason. In this case, it was just a pure stoned freak out because she realized that she was with aliens or something. And she stormed out. Like, she left us there, and we were both just shaking because she had this meltdown. And uh, that meltdown was transmitted to us. But anyway, like... She had a grocery outlet sticker on her bumper sticker. My friend reminded me of that. Uh, she, she, on, her, on the bumper of her car, she had a grocery outlet sticker. So it's like saying like, hey, Walmart sucks, but we have our own Walmart. Because it's basically the same thing. You know, while, yeah, Walmarts are, are seen as this sort of like corporate disease that go to small towns and kill small businesses and everybody has to work for Walmart. Everybody lives in the company town of Walmart and they're unethical and slave labor and they don't pay their people. Well, there's plenty of reasons to criticize Walmart. I'm not out to defend Walmart, but I will defend the people who shop there because they didn't choose it. If, they're po- if you're poor and the only big store around, the only place to get everything you need is Walmart, you know, that's what you got. And the fact that this whole system of humiliation and shame developed against that to humiliate not just the, to not just attack the store itself and what it stands for, but to humiliate the people who shop there. And the fact that you have the internet as a vessel for that, which I think is grassroots, like, I don't think that the the Democrat National Convention or the Democrat Party, whatever it is, paid for people of Walmart in 2005. I think that was a grassroots movement. I think that these things often are, but I think they are part of a, a political zeitgeist or a political current. And uh, you can see that now with Russia, just to cycle back to Russia. There's an Instagram account that I've been following for years called... Uh, Look at this Russian, which even just the name of that, like imagine if that was anybody else, like look at this Asian, look at, look at this, uh, you know, I mean, you could go on, look at this African, look at this Russian. And what it is, is it's mostly poor Russian people, poor drunk Russian people, so substance abuse, addicts doing stupid, weird things we can't understand because we're not Russian and we're not stuck in alcoholic poverty in Russia. And you know what? I'm not offended by it. Like the reason I follow it is because I, I find it genuinely entertaining. But I had an epiphany a couple years ago where I was like, oh, this isn't just in a vacuum. This is part of the, the people who look at this, the people who look at, look at this Russian 
also kind of have this belief that Russia is this nefarious force that it's colluding with American conservatives. And so this is a way of humiliating the common people. I mean, it's exactly like people of Walmart. It's heavily politicized. And the idea is that because they're white, poor, weird white people, I mean, because Russians are weird. And I don't, you know, I mean that in the best possible way and the worst possible way. Russians, compared to pretty much every other European group, they're a very strange people. We don't completely understand them. They are their own thing. And we don't think of them when we think of Europe. They look, their faces have that angular, there's an angularity to the Russian face even that makes them distinct. Uh, But sites like Look at This Russian, they're designed to humiliate generally probably poor. I mean, you look at the homes they live in and stuff. And, you know, I don't know what middle class looks like in Russia or if it even exists. But you look at like you'll see these people in these like shitty rundown apartments in these depressing post-Soviet cities and they're drunk and they're doing something stupid and they're, they're typically weird looking. There's maybe some kind of genetic issue and it's totally acceptable to laugh at them. And it fits right into this whole political narrative against Russia that the left has been pushing. I don't think that's separate and it's mundane and I think it's grassroots. It's a completely mundane Uh, You know, there's something very mundane about it. You know, it's not like, oh, this is clear propaganda. This is clear propaganda. It's not like I see it and I go, oh, this is obviously anti-Russian propaganda. But it feeds into that. But I'm fine with it. I don't think, look at this Russian should be taken down. I mean, a lot of the videos on there were taken by the people themselves. It's not like it's candid camera. A lot of it seems to be fairly... I don't know that the people intended to be on look at this Russian... But they gave their consent to somebody to document this stuff and share it. So I don't want to come from the point of view of like, take it down. Take, you, need to, you need to take us down. You need to take down this site. You know, I don't come from that place at all. I'm just commenting that it's part of a larger movement. And uh, just be aware of that. Just be aware of that because it's interesting to notice it. When you notice that, you go, oh, I see what this is. And I see who this is. I I know what audience is looking at this. I know who this is intended for. And maybe everybody can enjoy it. I can enjoy it, but I also like Russians. I'm a fan of a lot of Russian art and Russian music. And maybe that's a difference where, in addition to this political hysteria about Russia on the left, there's a general rejection of Russia in general. The way people talk about Russia and Russians would be completely unacceptable if it was targeted toward any other group around the world, whether it's a group in the U.S. or a group abroad, a a country abroad. The way that Russia is talked about, I mean, you can see it with China because people talk similarly about China, but there's this much greater resistance where, like, you saw that with the, the Wuhan China flu argument where it's like calling it a Chinese flu when it came from China allegedly I don't know about this I don't I don't know where this stuff comes from it's a hoax anyway um no but like I you know I don't know about all that I don't know where it came from but you can see where it was considered that wonderful term racist was used to describe 
a description of the virus that linked it to a country. Which, that's always the weird thing about homogenous countries, is that you can't refer to the country without being accused of talking about the people, or even the people's skin, or their features. It's interesting how homogenous countries create that dilemma in us, where to even talk about it as a country, as a nation, as a government, allows people to say, hey, you're being a bigot, you're being a racist, and how do you do that? How do you talk about a homogenous, a racially homogenous country's government without getting accused of being racist? I don't know, but uh, and of course there are people who are you know bigoted, who are prejudiced against the Chinese people. But it's weird how you can't even talk about the country itself without getting accused of that. But you don't see the same pushback about Russia. You don't see people defending Russia in the same way, even though they are a distinct ethnic people. Even though the people of Russia are subjects of, you know, a potentially tyr- tyrannical government, potentially tyrannical leadership under Putin, you know, even though the people are simply subjected to that and have very little choice. It's somehow okay to humiliate them in these centralized humiliation portals like, look at this Russian, and to say it as flippantly as that. Again, I'm not offended. I'm just pointing this out. I'm just pointing out what I see and the fact that it's connected to something larger, and there is something hypocritical about it. There is something that I, I believe is subconsciously deliberate. Even though I don't believe that this is all some well-orchestrated plot. I think there's an element of chaos to this. It is interesting when you see the puzzle pieces fit together and that anti-Russian hysteria is coupled with websites dedicated to humiliating the Russian people. That's not unrelated. It wasn't necessarily orchestrated by some guy pulling the strings, but it's not unrelated. There is an undercurrent that creates all this. Just something to be aware of. Just something to be aware of. And uh, also, as I've been talking about all episode, be aware of how values and behaviors shift. Like I've been talking about how, like the idea of being, you know, fat and eating whatever you want was seen as this negative trait of Republican redneck Southerners. It's now something that's promoted and celebrated by single women on the left. And you could possibly ruin your entire career or life (laughs) if you criticize that. So you can see where that's shifted. Where those things have sort of exchanged places. And we especially see it with free speech, as I've talked about plenty. Where when I came of age... How it was the Dixie Chicks getting in trouble for being anti-war. It was evangelical Christians trying to censor what appears in Walmart. It was there are endless examples. Even before I came of age, going back to the eighties, I came of age knowing what had happened in the eighties with the, you know, satanic hysteria. 
and you know the way that people tried to censor hard rock and metal and different forms of music, even mainstream manifestations of occult music and the censorship and to some degree persecution that was faced. You know, West Memphis 3, even though they did it, West Memphis 3 killed those little kids. I know it. Damien Eccles 100% killed those kids and all those celebrities bought into their sob story. The West Memphis Three did it. No, I don't know. I don't know who did it. Uh, for all I know, the Russians did it. The Russians killed those kids in West Memphis. The Russian espionage agents tried to kill uh, those kids. No, I I do think it would it would have been really funny in a horrible and sick way if w- when the West Memphis Three guys got released a few years back when they finally got freed. Since they had already pled, I think they got out by pleading guilty to the crime because it was the only way they could get released. And even though they claim they didn't do it, they pled guilty just so that they could get time served on their sentences. So because they pled guilty and were now released, they couldn't actually be sent back to prison. They had already served time for that specific crime. And even though it was this weird legal loophole they used, They couldn't get sent back to prison as far as I know. So I thought it would have been really sick and funny if they came out and did a press conference and they were like, oh, by the way, uh, sorry, Eddie Vedder. Sorry, celebrity friends. We did it. We killed them. And now there's nothing you can do. You bought our book. You did interviews with us. You promoted our cause. But we did it. I thought that would be really funny. But no, we can see where just my point was, you know, that satanic hysteria, like, you know, is believed to have led to those kids being arrested and uh, convicted of that crime, even though they're believed to be innocent. I don't believe so. (laughs) Um, But you can see where that, all. you know, there was this intense persecution from the evangelical right that led to a high degree of censorship, great free speech limitations. So when I came of age, free speech was, there was no question it was a liberal cause. There was no question it was the left who favored the arts, total expression. Maybe I naively believed that. Maybe I could have found exceptions. You know, because there were definitely people on the left who, who were saying, oh, that advertisement is misogynistic. It's not like people on the left weren't trying to impact things. It's not like they weren't trying to control things even then. But you can see where the power, the imbalance of power was greatly in favor of the conservative evangelical right. And as a result, they, to me, were the standard bearers of censorship. And so coming of age, I just kind of believed that that was always going to be the case. And then you move forward 20 years, and what you have is the left being the standard bearers of censorship. Well, what does that mean? It means that whoever's in power will probably do something to control what other people say and what other people are exposed to. And the left has been in massive cultural power for, for a number of years. It doesn't matter who, who was president the last four years. The left has had the cultural power for many years now, since basically since George W. Since George W. left orifice. Um, hey, Batty. Hey. 
But anyway, so you can see where that's what happens, where when there's an imbalance of power, the people who have the larger piece of the power pie, the power pie, this is a, it's like something from an RPG that'll like refuel your health. A power pie. You found a power pie. It increases your power two points. No, but you know, whoever has the bigger piece of the power pie is going to use that to smash somebody else's face. They're going to pie somebody else in the face with the bigger piece of the power pie. That's what I've learned. That's what I've learned. Uh, but the fact that these things do shift should tell you something. Because I could sit around all day and my entire point could be, look at these hypocrites. Oh, so 20 years ago, you made fun of poor Republicans for being fat Walmart shoppers. And now you're celebrating the fact that you're a, a fat grocery outlet shopper. You're a hypocrite. And I, I am pointing that out here because I think it's, it's an important observation, at least in my world. Maybe this doesn't make any sense to somebody else, but in my world, it does make sense. Uh, and I, I could be like, well, look at you used to be the victim of censorship. And now you're the one trying to control free speech. You're a hypocrite. I could find endless examples of this because these things shift. Oh, you used to say that the conservatives were out of control with their hysteria about Soviet Russia. And now look at you. You're hysterical about Russia under Putin. You know, I could, I could point out these hypocrisies in people all day, and it's hard not to. And they, go, they do go both ways. Of course they go both ways. But rather than just sit here and make the summation of my points. Look at these contradictory hypocrites. Look at these hypocritans. Rather than make that my point, what I want to say is that the fact that these things do shift should tell you something. They should tell you that these political parties, these political platforms, these movements have kind of an inherent phoniness. They're untrustworthy. They're unreliable. And rather than let that get to you, rather than try to fight it, that should allow you to define yourself. That should allow you, instead of using the outlines of these larger political movements, you should draw the outline around yourself or the people you know. It doesn't have to be all about you as an individual because you're not walled off from everyone and everything. You're, you're very much related to everyone and everything. Uh, but maybe you should revert back to that pre-coming-of-age period that I was talking about. You know, earlier I said coming-of-age is kind of the time where you become more a part of these larger external events that don't impact your immediate reality. That's kind of what coming-of-age is, because when you're a kid, your world is your immediate reality. And so when you see these hypocrisies, contradictions, these shifts... And even though some of the shifts might make some sense, or you might understand the rationale, or you might understand how they're causally connected to other events, like, yeah, it makes sense that people's opinion would change on Russia after the Soviet Union fell. These things can be explained to some degree, only to some degree, because I won't say they can be fully explained. Um, but, you know, I think a way to deal with all this is, is rather than get lost in all of the contradictions and hypocrisies, and rather than pointing your finger at everybody and everything, even though I've probably been doing that all episode long, you know, to get to the, to the heart of it all, 
It just means you have to focus more on your immediate reality. And while you should be willing to change yourself, you should be willing to shift yourself. You don't want to shift with these sands that are all around you. You don't want to, you don't want to be weaker because you've attached yourself to a political cause that is blowing in the wind, which they are. We can see where they've blown in the wind even in the last month. We can see where they've blown in the wind in the last week. You know, we can see where they're constantly getting moved around. And that just takes away from your own sanity. That just takes away from your own conviction. It takes away from your own confidence. Why were those fat redneck women I grew up around so confident? Well, for one, they only seemed to care about their immediate reality. They only seemed to care about their immediate world. Like, they didn't see being a loud fat woman as part of some political movement that needed to be dissected and discussed as part of, like, a, a larger issue, you know, underneath the, the war on the Patriot, whatever it is, you know, you know what I'm getting at. They didn't see it that way. They just did what they wanted to do and, and were who they are. And I don't, I'm not trying to pretend they lived some idealistic, perfect life, but they seemed to be totally fine with that part of themselves. They seemed to be totally cool with their physical presence. And we're living in a time where people are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with their physical bodies. And even though I can veer into this anti-materialism, even though I understand that sort of that angle of capital G Gnosticism that makes you kind of despise and feel an inherent discomfort with this temporary material reality that we treat like it's everything, even though I understand that and I catch myself veering that way, you know, I, at the end of the day, I like feeling okay with who I am. And when other people don't feel that way, it sucks. It sucks for everyone because it affects their relationship to everyone. But I wonder how much of that is them actually thinking about their immediate reality. I wonder how much of it is them getting blown in the wind all the time. Because if you're getting blown in the wind, blown in the political winds all the time, how are you ever going to be comfortable? How are you ever going to know who you are? So you might as well draw an outline around yourself, but make sure it's in chalk. And, and not a dead body outline. <laughs> Draw a chalk outline around yourself. Here's a self-help t- tip. Draw a chalk outline around yourself, but make sure you have an eraser handy so that you can then include other people in that, the people you know. Work outward. Start inward, work outward. And then you'll find that you don't even know the difference between those things. You'll find that you don't even know the difference between inward and outward. Because the things that you are touching are the things that matter. The things that are a part of your immediate reality are the things inside of that outline. Whether right now it's you at home by yourself or with your little dog like me. Or whether somebody's at your house. Your immediate reality is whatever is in that outline you've drawn. And if you're focused on that, I don't see how you can get completely hijacked, completely dominated by these weak political wins, because those aren't even the good wins. Those aren't even the good, that's not even the good kind of win, because there is a good kind of wind. These little weak political wins, it's like somebody set up a million little desk fans. A bunch of tiny little, not even desk fans, like those little, those little propel, like handheld propeller fans 
that people embarrassingly use in public on hot days. And they all make the same face when they use them. They all like tuck their chin down and like make like this weird grimace as they use these little propeller fans on their face. That's what a political wind is. It's this little stupid device that makes you look stupid while you, it's a stupid little device that makes you look stupid. Well, the stupid, stupid, you know, uh, but it's, it's this little like manufactured device, which is a manufactured device, which makes you look stupid while you use it, makes you think you need it. But in reality, it's just creating this fake little wind. And the fact that there's a million of them all around has made you think that that's what the wind actually is. When the reality, I don't know, this, I, I wish that this was more poignant. <laughs> I wish this was more poignant. I wish I could wrap this all up. With a, I wish I could tie this together. But that's what politics are. That's what sociopolitics are. That's what culture can be sometimes. I love culture. I praise culture. I'm a fan of culture. But sometimes culture gets hijacked by a million people with a bunch of little propeller fans, and they're trying to tell you that's the real wind, and I'm telling you it's not. Draw that outline around yourself. Draw that outline around the people you love. Draw that outline around your immediate reality. Be open to revision. Be open to positive mutation. And feel the real wind. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see